I, I just thought when, when Alicia announced me as Pastor Jackson, this may be really non-PC, but I felt like I really should be a black African-American man uh, standing up before you. I apologise I apologize if that's who you thought I was going to be. Um, and I've deeply disappointed you. Um, my apologies. My apologies. Uh, friends, I am Simon. I'm a pastor here at church. Uh, great to see you all here tonight. Uh, we do start a series um, on the book of Ezekiel. Um, we're going to do six weeks on Ezekiel. Um, you can't really read that, can you? Um, you can probably read that. Ezekiel, as good as it gets. Uh, that's, what we're gonna, that's what I've called the series um, as we look at this prophecy or a word of God that came to the prophet Ezekiel. Uh, this man, Ezekiel, who lived um, in the 6th century before Christ. Um, he was a man... Uh, he was a man who was called to do an extraordinary thing, uh, to speak the word of God to a, a group of people known as the Israelites, God's chosen people, at a time of deep despair and lament in their lives. They had been unfaithful uh, to God um, and the whole kind of notion of Israel was crumbling. Uh, the whole notion of God and his relationship with his people, not God's unfaithfulness, but the Israelites' unfaithfulness, this relationship was breaking down. Um, and Ezekiel is called to speak a word of God, it's a long word of God, to the nation of Israel, those who were left, the remnant of Israel. If you have a look on the screen, the next slide, here's a bit of a, a look at the shape of the book of Ezekiel. Um, it is a long book. It's 48 chapters long. We're going to do it in six weeks. Um, we're going to do it in, in ways that we won't, you know, go through every single word of the text, uh, but we'll spend a fair bit of time in big sections looking at the big themes of Ezekiel. Who remembers Paul Keating? Who remembers Paul Keating? Ex-Prime Minister of Australia. Who remembers his economic policy? Not, it wasn't a good one, but... <laughs> But the basic, the basic principle of his economic policy was what he called the J-curve. The J-curve. That his idea was, if you imagine a J, before things get better, they've got to get worse. That was his economic policy. That's pretty much like the policy we see of the book of Ezekiel. Uh, things are bad, but things get a lot worse before they get better. You can see the shape. The J then kicks up. Uh, we start tonight in Ezekiel chapter 1. Uh, where Ezekiel gets this great vision of God, uh, but then it just kind of gets worse. Look out, there are weeks of judgment coming. Uh, chapter after chapter after chapter, as Ezekiel is called to speak a word of judgment against the Israelite people, until Jerusalem is surrounded in about chapter 24, um, things are pretty bad, and then by chapter 20, uh, about 33, end of 33, or end of 32, Jerusalem is no more, it's crushed. At that point, Judgment kind of seems to end and hope starts. A word of hope comes and we see a new shepherd promise, new life promise, new unity promise. We see security, a temple, a garden and a new promised land. Hang in there. Uh, it's worth it. Let me tell you as we start um, about a glorious day and an unexpected vision that I had as we prepare to hear from Ezekiel chapter 1. Let me tell you about one of the most glorious days of my life. No, it wasn't the day that I got married. That was a glorious day. 
Now, it wasn't the day that my little baby girl was born and I got to name her Stella May. That was a pretty glorious day. No, it was a day at the Sydney Cricket Ground. It was the day that Glenn McGrath and Shane Warne played their last day of Test Match Cricket on Australian soil for Australia. It was the fifth day of the fifth test and Australia was victorious. I was there with my friends and we clapped and we stood on our chairs as Glenn McGrath bowled his last ball of his last over and he took a wicket and we stood on our chairs and we said, ooh, ah, Glenn McGrath. (laughs) Why was that day so impressive? Why was it so glorious? Why will I never forget it? Why do I feel the need to bore you beautiful people with the story and you're just going, I don't even like cricket? Why? Because Glenn McGrath and Shane Warne could do things with a cricket ball that no one else could do. They were glorious. They, they put terror in the eyes of the batsmen as they came in to bowl their cricket balls. They're glorious. What they could do was astonishing. No one else could do it. If I was introduced to Glenn McGrath in person, I think I'd be weak at the knees, I'd babble, I'd blabber, I'd have nothing to do. So it was a few months later that I was at the SCG again, standing up, looking to get some deep-fried food from the deep-fried food shop at the SCG, and I'm just standing there in the long line hoping I can get back to the football game, and I turn around, and there is Glenn McGrath, right behind me. And I said... Hi, Glenn. <laughs> Knees knocking. Oh, this is like I had nothing to say. You probably said I get this all the time. There I was, an unexpected vision, and he's just glorious. <laughs> Ezekiel has a vision of God. He gets a vision of God that is absolutely glorious. Yet it comes in an unexpected place, at an unexpected time. While Israel is deep in despair and lament, far from home. And one of the big things that Ezekiel sees as he gets this vision of God, one of the things he realises is even though he's made in the image of God, he is not God. And that changes his life. He sees the character of God, the person of God, the power of God, the ability of God to turn deep despair into great hope. And what does he do? Right at the end, the culmination of the vision in chapter 1, verse 28, Ezekiel sees the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord and he falls down, flat on his face. Awesome vision of God. This vision is the preface to the whole book of Ezekiel. It's not just there because we need to know who God is. Yes, it's there because we need to know God is, but we need to work out who is the one speaking through the prophet Ezekiel. And therefore, so should we listen to him? And indeed, we should listen to him. The story of Israel is an amazing story up until this point. The story of the Bible is that God himself, in all his self-existence, chooses a nation, chooses a people for himself who will reflect his glory in the world. 
who will show the majesty and power and greatness of God in the world, he chooses one nation, not because they're special, he chooses the descendants of Abraham to be this group of people. And the story of the Bible is God using this group of people to display his glory. To to show ultimately that everything will be put one day under the headship of the Messiah, the King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus ultimately is the one who sits on the throne in heaven in the vision that John gets in Revelation. Everything under his feet. That's the story of the Bible. And the one who speaks in Ezekiel is the one who puts this plan into action and keeps this plan going and brings it to fulfilment. So as we step into a certain part of history, as we step into a certain part of salvation history in Ezekiel, we need to know where we're at. God's given great promises to Israel. He said, I'll give you a land, a beautiful land flowing with milk and honey. Walk into that land. I will lead you into that land. The land in which you will live will not only be a blessing to you, Israel, but be a blessing to the world. And God would be with them in the temple at Jerusalem. God dwelling with his people. Peace, relationship with God, blessing. These are the promises of God. Yet Israel has been unfaithful. And so judgment comes upon them. God had said, if you don't live as my people, I will send you out of the land into exile, away from the temple, away from me, away from Jerusalem. And that's where we find Ezekiel. This is where we find the people of God, away from the temple, away from Jerusalem, under judgment. But with judgment came mercy. Uh, If you have your Bible open... Um, Flick it open to Ezekiel chapter 1. Ezekiel chapter 1, 586, page 586. Where it says, In the 30th year, verse 1, in the fourth month, on the fifth day, there was judgment. See that? While I was with the exiles by the Kabar River. They're in Babylon. They're away from where they want to be. They're not at home with God. They're a long way from where they thought God was. Judgment for a faithless people. They're in exile, cut off. They are described in chapter 2 as a rebellious house, obstinate, stubborn, deaf. They're rebellious, unfaithful. Judgment for a faithless people. And yet the verse, verse 1 ends with words of hope right up. Verse 1, we get the kind of two sides of the whole book. Judgment in exile, but then the second half, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. Mercy. God reveals himself again to his people. Judgment, yes, in exile, but mercy through God. God still speaks to them even though they're not in Jerusalem, away from their home. Ezekiel chapter 1, as we're about to look at, uh, fleshes out who is the one speaking. And it's God. The question for us tonight is, what is your picture of God? Have you lost sense of the majesty of God? I think for us postmodern, middle-class, hipster Christians who live in this world, who kind of hang out in Kirribilli, 
I think we believe that we are the centre of everything. One of the correctives of Ezekiel tonight and throughout the whole series will be that we are not the centre of the universe. God is. High above every ruler and authority. He set his son on the throne in heaven. He's the one who saved us and he's the one whom we come to God through. Friends, I hope that as we read Ezekiel, as we study it for six weeks, we will just be blown away by the majesty of God, his judgment, but also his mercy. You can't have one without the other. I hope the corrective is that we have our minds opened again. We're reminded afresh like the Israelites needed to be reminded of God's majesty. And so listen to him again. Fall in love with him again. Come to him, perhaps I pray, for the first time to see that Jesus is the one who speaks and is the one who saves. That's my prayer. I'm now going to have Mick and Amanda, actually Amanda first, to come and read the Bible for us. Have Ezekiel chapter 1 open for you and we'll get into that in a second. Ezekiel chapter 1, page 586. In the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kibar River, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. On the fifth of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Butsi, by the Kibar River in the land of the Babylonians. There the hand of the Lord was upon him. I looked and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. The centre of the fire looked like glowing metal, and in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. In appearance, their form was that of a man, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, their feet were like those of a calf, and gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings on the four sides they had the hands of a man. All four of them had faces and wings and their wings touched one another. Each one went straight ahead. They did not turn as they moved. Their faces looked like this. Each of the four had the face of a man and on the right side each had the face of a lion and on the left the face of an ox. Each also had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. Their wings were spread out upward. Each had two wings, one touching the wing of another creature on either side and two wings covering its body. Each one went straight ahead. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go without turning as they went. The appearance of the living creatures was like burning coals of fire or like torches. Fire moved back and forth among the creatures. It was bright and lightning flashed out of it. The creatures sped back and forth like flashes of lightning. As I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the ground beside each creature with its four faces. This was the appearance and structure of the wheels. They sparkled like chrysolite and all four looked alike. Each appeared to be made like a wheel intersecting a wheel. As they moved, they would go in any one of four directions. The creatures faced. The, the wheels did not turn about as the creatures went. Their rims were high and awesome, and all four rims were full of eyes all around. 
When the living creatures moved, the wheels beside them moved. And when the living creatures rose from the ground, the wheels also rose. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go. And the wheels would rise along with them, because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When the creatures moved, they also moved. When the creatures stood still, they also stood still. And when the creatures rose from the ground, the wheels rose along with them, because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Spread out above the heads of the living creatures was what looked like an expanse, sparkling like ice and awesome. Under the expanse, their wings were stretched out, one toward the other, and each had two wings covering its body. When the creatures moved, I heard the sound of their wings, like the roar of rushing waters, like the voice of the Almighty, like the tumult of an army. When they stood still, they lowered their wings. Then there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads, as they stood with lowered wings. Above the expanse over their heads was what looked like a throne of sapphire, and high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal, as if full of fire, and from, down, from there down he looked like fire, and brilliant light surrounded him. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face down, and I heard the voice of one speaking. Uh, turn with me to page 846 for our New Testament reading, and it's uh, Hebrews 1, 1 to 4. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Thanks, Nick. Thanks, Amanda, who was here but has gone. <laughs> now let's pray as we come before God's word tonight, brothers and sisters and friends. Our Heavenly Father, in whom the fullness of light and wisdom dwells. Father, I pray that tonight, by your Holy Spirit, give us grace to receive your word with reverence and humility. Father, because without that, we cannot understand your truth. Father, help me to speak faithfully. Help me to speak with power. Father, may Jesus be glorified. May you remind us of your glory your majesty, your power. May you remind us, Father, this night that you are God, that we are your subjects, and that, Lord, we should worship you with everything that we have, our hearts, our minds, our souls, all the things you give us, Father. We pray that tonight we would hand them over to you in majesty, Father. Please speak to us tonight powerfully through your word for the sake of your son who lives and reigns. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. 
Friends, there's always been uh, people throughout life, you may know them, who've, who've been a little bit religiously inclined and they've longed for, sought for, desired more than anything to have a vision of God, to see God, to physically encounter the divine, to so encounter the divine that sight gives way, or faith gives way to sight. You move from just trusting a whole bunch of ideas to seeing it right in front of your eyes, tangible, visual, to experience God directly. And to many such people, Ezekiel is one outstanding example of a man who was granted such an experience. Of course, there are others. Remember Moses at the burning bush, Exodus chapter 3? caught a glimpse of the glory of God. Remember that? At Mount Sinai, that's where that happened. Again at Mount Sinai, a little bit later, Israel catches a glimpse of the glory of God. They see, they get a a glimpse of him. Moses goes up onto the mountain. He sees only a part of God's glory comes down. His face is glowing. For he's seen, he's been in the presence of the radiance of God's glory. Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, in the temple of Jerusalem, catches a glimpse of the glory of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, holier, holiest. No one holier than God. What does he do? Face down. Another man, there was John, the apostle John, on the island of Patmos gets a vision of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, dead, risen, throned above all powers. And what does he do? Bang, face down. Overwhelmed by the majesty of the glory of God. But at least in the pages of the Old Testament, Ezekiel's vision of God is outstanding. It's astonishing. Many attempts have been made to unlock the secrets of Ezekiel chapter 1. I hope that as Amanda read that, you were scribbling a picture of what this vision actually looked like. Um, If you don't want to listen to me, you might want to try and do that and you can submit that to me later and I'll see how close you get. I don't think anyone can really draw that. That's not the idea. Because in this, we get the character of God coming through. This has been, this has spawned numerous mystical religious movements of people seeking sort of a greater experience and revelation and vision of God. Now, whether we follow that path here at Church by the Bridge, I'll hang on to that just for a few moments and explain that later. But we cannot sidestep the question as we come to the Scripture, and in particular as we come to Ezekiel, this Scripture, how is this the Word of God for me today? How is this prophecy given on a particular day in July 593 BC, it's a long time ago, How is this particular word of God, the word of God to you, the word of God to me, in May 2012? The day that the heavens were opened and the son of Bootsy saw visions of God, how is this account, this word of God, a word to you and to me tonight? I hope as you had that Bible passage read, you were thinking those things. What on earth is this about? How does this change my life tonight? It's, it's the question that the preacher, the Bible teacher faces every time a scripture is put in front of him or her to preach upon. It's, but it's the same question for, question for any 
Christian who knows that the word of God, the scriptures are the living words of God, working out when you read it, what does it mean for me? I want us to I want to help answer that question tonight. So that we can walk away here changed by the word of God, living lives for his glory. I've really got two questions. What did Ezekiel see? And then what does it mean to me? What does Ezekiel see and what does it mean to me? The details in chapter 1, have it open in front of you, are numerous and we cannot kind of delve into them in detail tonight. If we were, I think we'd be here probably till the end of the year. There's so much detail. But have a look with me. There's this idea in verse 4 of a windstorm approaching from the north. A gigantic cloud encircled by brilliant radiance. Four, did you catch the creatures? Four glowing creatures somehow within the cloud, creatures with wings, with long wings, touching at all four corners. Wings that as they moved made a thunderous noise like the tumult of an army. I by God's grace, have never been in war. But I can imagine as you wait for the enemy to approach and the sound builds and builds and builds and the fear grows and grows and grows, the tumult of an approaching army. Four different faces on each of the creatures. A face of a human, that of nobility, The eagle, majestic, nothing hunts the eagle. The ox, strength and fertility, that God is the source of life. The lion, pardon the expression, picking up the idea of the king of the jungle. When he roars, there is fear. Moving like lightning back and forth and back and forth. The wheels, did you catch the wheels? Strange wheels, like a wheel within a wheel. Moving moving all over the place, covered in eyes. Did you catch that? Moving in four directions without turning. The wings, the wheels covering the expanse of the earth, the four corners of the globe, the four winds. This is an all-encompassing vision of God. And then you'd catch it later on. There was a dome, an ice-like dome and above the dome on top of the dome that first part before we get to the dome is just the attendance of the throne we haven't even got to the key member of the throne he who sits on the throne there's this dome and on the dome a radiant figure like a man glowing waist up waist down Glowing in radiance. And although it does seem to take Ezekiel a little while to work out what he's actually seeing, by the end of the chapter, it's absolutely clear. Chapter 1, verse 28. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. This was a vision of Yahweh, the God of Israel. It's cautious language. You see, it's the appearance of the likeness of the glory of Lord. It, it perhaps underlines that this experience of Ezekiel was not a direct encounter with God, but it's pretty much as close as you're likely to find. 
there can be no doubt that for the reader of Scripture, for you and I, that we are to be reminded afresh of the majesty and the glory of God. Enthroned high above every expression of creaturely power. Notice that the the man sitting upon the throne is above all other elements of creaturely power. High above, radiant, in glory above. Magnificent, unquestionably almighty. Unrivaled in power and splendor. There can be no doubt to the reader we are to understand and identify with Ezekiel's response. When I saw it, I fell down, face down. Are we then to be led on a mystical path? To seek a greater vision, a physical vision of God? To seek ourselves such an experience, such a vision of God like Ezekiel? To see in Ezekiel's experience a model of that which you and I are to pursue, that church by the bridge, should we be encouraging you to look for a vision like this? What should we see? What should we see? There are two things, friends, that I think we should see in Ezekiel 1 that suggest a different response than seeking our own mystical kind of journey. Firstly, this vision comes at a particular time, in a particular place, in a particular situation, for a particular purpose. The text makes it clear that Ezekiel's vision occurred in a particular place. Have a look with me, chapter 1, verse 1. In the thirtieth year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kabar River, the heavens were open and I saw visions of God. It's likely that in the thirtieth year meant on the thirtieth birthday of Ezekiel. That's what it's likely meant to mean. What a birthday present this would be. Imagine that. I, when I turned 30, I got a coffee machine. Ezekiel gets a glorious vision of God on his 30th birthday. It's also true to say that Ezekiel is a priest. Later it says he's the son of Bootsy. He's a priest. Uh, likely is that um, Ezekiel on his 30th birthday would have entered the temple for temple service as a priest. And yet he's, well, he's way out of whack, isn't he? Ezekiel 1-2 tells us it was in the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin, the fifth year of exile under the Babylonians. It's five years before Jerusalem will get smashed to pieces and be no more. The crumbling's already begun. Under Nebuchadnezzar, um, the king, he's the Babylonian king, he's moved out of Jerusalem several waves of the middle and upper class, a bit like moving Kirribilli down the road somewhere else or to South Australia. And he's moved them out move them out, and they now live in a foreign land under a foreign rule, enslaved, oppressed, in despair, far from their home. And the Babylonian might shows no signs of wavering. They are a juggernaut and they then crush Jerusalem in five years' time. Far from their land are the Israelites, far from their home, far from their temple. A little bit like us. If you're a Christian, you are far from heaven. We are far from our home. We're in this world. Jesus, our Lord, is risen. He is ascended on high. We long to see him. And the priest Ezekiel is among the Israelites and he's out of work. There's no temple. And yet, indeed, he has lots of work to do as a priest of God's people as he gets this vision. 
It's not unimportant that it's in this situation, in the exile, that Ezekiel sees visions of God. And from that situation, the account comes to us. Precisely when pagan powers appear to rule, they are ruled in their time, they rule mainly in our time. Precisely when they appeared to have called the tune, how life is to be lived. Do we not live in those days as well as Christian people, far from our home, pagan rule? We long for our saviour to reveal himself fully and and his power be displayed for all to see. The heavens were open and Ezekiel saw visions of the majestic glory of God enthroned on high above every expression of creaturely power. But more than that, Ezekiel's vision in chapter 1 had a very particular purpose. It doesn't stand on its own, this vision. It's preliminary. What is to come? It's just an introduction. It leads to the already anticipated words that sum up Ezekiel's experience at the beginning of the book, verse 2 and 3. On the fifth month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, by the Kabar River in the land of the Babylonians, there the hand of the Lord was upon him. The word of the Lord was upon him. And towards the end of the account of this extraordinary experience, the idea comes again in verse 25. There came a voice from the expanse. Then the chapter concludes with a clear indication of where it's all heading, the purpose. When I saw it, I fell face down and I heard the voice of one speaking. Now it's remarkable and I suggest to you that it is absolutely clear. The majestic glory of God recorded for us in Ezekiel chapter 1 is not just recounted for the fun of it. It's not recounted just for its own sake. It's not just recounted for Ezekiel's sake. The point is not simply that the Lord God, the the living God of Yahweh, towers above the Nebuchadnezzars and other rulers of the world, although he does, don't get me wrong. But the majestic splendor, unrivaled character of God is revealed so that Ezekiel and you and I might know just who it is who will speak to Ezekiel and subsequently to his people Israel and therefore speaks to us. You see, Ezekiel chapter 1 must do the very opposite of leading us down the mystical path, wondering what God's kind of like, seeking some amazing vision of God somewhere else out there. It must shake us out of our at times pathetic ho-hum attitude before the living God and before the prophetic word of God. This is the one who has spoken. It must galvanise us into a confidence in in the word of God. This is the one who has spoken. It must force us to humbly place ourselves under the word of God. This is the one who has spoken. It must bring us, and violently, if necessary, to humble repentance. If we've ever thought that this word of God was inadequate, that God was inadequate, 
This is the one who has spoken. Spoken through the prophets at many times and in various ways. We are going to see some of the various ways that God has called his prophet to speak in the coming weeks. Hold on to your hats. And I think you're going to walk away at times going, I'm thankful to God that I was not the prophet Ezekiel. He is called to do some radical things. At points we'll see that he's called to get a brick, pretend that it's Jerusalem and hold a sword against the brick, pretending to lay siege against it. Because of the unfaithfulness of Israel for, very, for hundreds of years, he's called to lie down on his side with aphasia, they call it, unable to move, on his side for 390 days at one point and then lie again on his side to just get the weight of what it's like to feel like that, to be rejected by God and his people. He is he's tied, he's bound with ropes so that he can't leave being amongst the people. He is made mute, he can't speak. He can't speak to the people to again exercise God's judgment upon this people. My question is, who'd be Ezekiel? But this is the word of God and it has implications for us. This is a strange sight that we begin with, isn't it? You're probably wondering, oh my gosh, what have I got myself into? Ezekiel. Let me just share with you a few brief implications of what we've seen tonight. God has spoken through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, who is the radiance of God's glory. And we will see that so clearly. There are so many clear connections between God's promises made in Ezekiel and the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God. The Son of Man sitting high upon the throne is the Lord Jesus Christ. John, Revelation chapter 4, sees blazing fires, amazing glory, and the same terminology is used, and that is Jesus, raised, sitting high on the throne, his hand upon all rulers. God's glory is revealed at the cross. The themes of judgment and mercy are interplayed and interwoven at the cross. God's judgment for sin poured out upon the perfect Son. God's mercy for those who believe in him. It is a strange sight. It's a weird vision. Eyes everywhere because God sees everything. Every move you make, every step you take, I'll be watching you. (laughs) Sting with the police sang that song. I'd like to know. I'll call him up and say, look, were you reading... You know, Ezekiel, when you came up with that. It's a weird vision. Eyes all over the wheels. He sees everything. Wheels everywhere because God can get to everything. Creatures with lots of faces carrying the throne because God is served by everything. It's a picture of God from whom you cannot hide. That's confronting, is it not? But it's comforting. Nothing escapes his gaze. That means for you and I, our sin is laid bare before him. And yet in the cross, he ought to judge our sin. He ought to condemn us for our sin. But he pours out his judgment and wrath upon his son so that we experience his mercy. It comes in an unexpected place, this vision of Yahweh, the God of Israel, 
It's behind enemy lines. In Babylon, it reinforces the vision itself. The wings, the eyes, the wheels, the strangeness of the sight, the unexpectedness of the place, both say the same thing. God is Lord of everything. And therefore, he can do anything and go anywhere. I can't do that. I'm here. I am bound by space and time. The Israelites expected God could only be in the temple. And yet there they are, miles from the temple in Jerusalem, and God declares himself to them, I am not bound to a building. I can be anywhere. And he's there by, as we looked at for the last four weeks, God is everywhere by his spirit. I'm bound by space and time. I'm standing here tonight. I can't be here and at Garfish having some fish at the same time. God is everywhere. We are not like him. He is everywhere. He can do anything. Is that not comforting? To know that he can be everywhere. He knows everything. This is the God who speaks to us in Ezekiel. Does it galvanize your confidence in the word of God? It ought to force you to humbly put yourself at his feet, fall down before God, worship him, and bring us violently, if necessary, to humble repentance. I am not God. But praise God that you are God, majestic, holy, radiant. Praise him that the Lord Jesus Christ who died for us is that radiant son of God seated on the throne, ready to come back, ready to take us home. God has spoken through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, He's spoken to us by his Son, the radiance of God's glory. Let's pray, shall we? Our great God, our great and majestic God, whom we have been reminded of tonight, you are Lord over all. We, your creatures, acknowledge your majesty. We marvel at your splendor. We fall down before your radiance. Thank you that you have spoken. We pray that you, as our God and our Father, we would be people who live under your word and follow your Son. Father, tonight, for those of us here who don't yet call Jesus our Saviour, I pray that you would so stir their hearts that they would bow before you as their Lord and God and Creator. We are not you, God. Thank you that you are everywhere and in anything. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who died for us and who will take us home. We pray this for his renown and for his fame. Amen. <clears throat>